Hey, some exciting news and just a quick note before we begin. We were recently nominated for a podcast award. If you're enjoying the show, I would appreciate it if you vote for us in the 14th annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. To vote for us, please visit podcastawards.com and click the blue button that says Nominations Now Open. You'll need to create a quick account, but once in, select History of the Marine Corps from the drop-down on two locations. The first is the Adam Curry People's Choice Award, and the second drop-down is in Society and Culture. Once these two are selected, hit Save Nomination, and that's it. We really appreciate your help. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 20 of History of the Marine Corps, the French Pickin Alliance. Last week, we took a look at the Continental Navy's attempt to take back Philadelphia. We also dove into a quick review about the British and their attacks on Fort Billingsport, Fort Mifflin, and Fort Mercer. We ended the episode with a trip across the pond and saw the Marines and sailors in action in European waters. This week, we mainly focus on the commander of the Ranger, John Paul Jones. He is experiencing a lot of pushback from some of his decisions, and some of his Marines are feeling the blow of it. We also learn about a raid conducted by Marines and sailors on the Duke of Selkirk's residence. Apparently, Marine Lieutenant Wallingford left such a great impression that Lady Selkirk wrote a letter to John Paul Jones when she heard of Wallingford's death. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Commander of the Ranger, Jones and his 150 Marines and sailors traveled 32 days from the United States to Payne Buff on the Loire River. On December 2nd, she pulled into port and Captain Jones immediately made his way to Paris to meet with the three American commissioners, Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee. Before Jones left the United States, he was promised command of a large frigate named the Lindian a frigate built for the U.S. commissioners in France. It was designed by a French naval architect named Jacques Bou. Bou was originally given responsibility for reorganizing France's naval administration. He came up with suggestions and provided them to the ministry, but they abandoned his ideas and exchanged them for other suggestions. Bou was frustrated with this decision and turned to Silas Dean with his ideas on developing American frigates. To minimize cost, the decision was made to build the frigates in the Netherlands, but they ran into some problems. The Dutch government was still neutral about the war, and they were receiving pushback from the British about the construction of the American frigates. This delayed construction, and now Jones patiently waited to hear next steps. While this was going on, the French were trying to figure out what to do about the war. This whole time, they publicly remained neutral, but secretly helped out the Americans. The French and the British had a well-known rivalry before the American Revolution kicked off. In fact, the whole reason this war happened in the first place was because the British taxed the Americans to pay off war debt from an earlier war with France. The French government was debating on what to do about the Americans and the British. 
no one knew how this war would turn out. Initially, the odds were in the favor of the British. They had a superior navy, resources to procure some of the best soldiers, and extensive experience in war. It seemed like a sure win, but the Americans and their 13 colonies proved a lot of people wrong. The British faced some tough battles, and the recent victory at Saratoga by the Americans just placed another mark in the belt for American independence. However, the outcome was still unsure, and the French was scared that a deal might break out between America and British that allowed the colonies to have their independence while establishing peace between the two countries. The French knew that American commissioners were communicating with the British Prime Minister, and they did not want an agreement to be established by the two countries. The French Foreign Minister decided to take action and assemble the Council of Ministers in January. He announced that the time to pick a side was now, and if they didn't, there was a chance that the British and the Americans would come to a peace deal. The Council of Ministers agreed with the French Foreign Minister and they voted for an alliance with America. By February, the alliance was signed and formalized. This changed the game for the Americans, and now they have new resources they could draw from. To show their support for France's decision, the commissioners turned over the metaphorical keys to the Lindian to the French government. Naturally, this move upset Jones. He thought he would receive command of this newly built frigate, but this was no longer the case. However, Franklin still believed and saw value in Jones and the Ranger and focused on another task for him and his crew. Franklin and Dean issued orders to Jones, stating that he would properly equip the Ranger and sail her to the enemies of the United States and torment them by any means within the laws of war. They specifically instructed Jones to make an attempt on the coast of Great Britain. He was also instructed to remain tactful and diplomatic to any country that remains neutral. This was to avoid a possibly negative impact from supporting countries, specifically France. When he arrived in France, he shared his thoughts and ideas about how to attack the British with the American commissioners. His views aligned very closely with Robert Morris, and he thought the British were spread too thin. The best route forward was to attack British locations that were relatively unguarded and important to their strategy and resources. This would avoid conflict with superior naval forces, acquire valuable resources for the American military, and simultaneously impact the British supply line and possibly morale. Jones developed the plan and presented it to the commissioners. The commissioners signed off on the plan and Jones spent multiple weeks getting the Ranger ready for her upcoming mission. The men on board the Ranger would be provided equipment too, which included clothing, gunpowder, pistols, cutlasses, and multiple other weapons. The Ranger was ready for a fight. In February, Jones partnered up with the French fleet to embark on their mission. However, the officers on board the Ranger did not share the same enthusiasm as Jones, and they started to complain about the crews. They were mostly upset about the promise of prize money from previous victories. Recruiting was tough, and men were lured into service after a promise of wealth from the potential prize money. But they didn't see the prize money from the two ships captured while traveling to France, and they didn't want to embark on another mission that didn't offer rewards for captured British ships and supplies. This anger turned towards the Marines, and a formal complaint was filed against Marine Captain Matthew Park. 
The crew argued that Captain Matthew Park shouldn't even be on the Ranger, since a captain of Marines isn't allowed to serve on any ship with less than 20 cannons. The crew viewed this as an issue because Park would receive a portion of the prize money, but wasn't really needed on the ship. They requested Park off the ship. On February 19, 1778, Captain Park wrote a letter to John Paul Jones regarding the complaint from the crew. A copy of this letter can be found in the John Paul Jones papers referenced on historyofthemarinecorps.com. But Park unenthusiastically requested discharge in France. His letter stated, On our arrival in France, I expected to have the happiness of going on board the frigate you were to have the command of. This has failed, and these officers are very much dissatisfied. He went on to write, Considering my future happiness and the welfare of the service, I do request a discharge from the ship, although very disagreeable, that I may return in the frigate Dean to America. Jones wasn't thrilled about this complaint and thought his officer's decision was narrow-minded and unjust, but he understood Park's resignation and hesitantly accepted it. Jones and his crew headed northwest towards Brest, France. On March 3rd, Captain Park was dropped off at Camaray, which was located about eight miles south of their final destination. Park went on his way, and he was replaced by Lieutenant Jean Mayer from the Swedish Army. While in Brest, Jones went over his plans with the commander of the French fleet. He suggested that the newly formed fleet head to England and destroy merchant shipping. He also planned to take someone notable as a prisoner of war, so they can leverage the person's notoriety to release Americans imprisoned in Britain. This was a touchy subject during the time. The British did not take great care of their prisoners of war. Captured officers were treated relatively well, but enlisted men were not as fortunate. King George declared the Americans as traitors. However, British officials decided against hanging prisoners for treason. Most prisoners were just neglected, which in some cases would lead to death anyways. Prisoners would be crammed into overcrowded ships and barracks, and they were fed moldy food. Clothing was either not provided or just in very poor condition, and they were forced to live in horrible sanitation conditions as well. Many men would get sick and die due to the lack of care. Jones wanted to rescue as many Americans as he could and hopefully change the practice by England. Jones knew what he wanted to do, but he didn't know how he was going to do it. To allow himself a little extra time, and to give his crew a much-needed break, he authorized liberty for the Marines and sailors. The crew was on board the ship for over a month, and they needed some time to unwind. This was the perfect place for it, too. They were in a town built around seafarers, and there was a lot of entertainment at this port. Some men used this opportunity to get drunk, some to get ready for upcoming battles, and some used this opportunity to just leave and desert. The ranger would receive care as well, and while her crew was unwinding, she was being repaired and cleaned up for future engagements. While the ranger was undergoing maintenance, Marine Lieutenant Samuel Wallingford and a few other officers took advantage of this opportunity to analyze the town's fortification which included a new fort being built nearby. With a relaxed crew, the ranger would head back out to sea on April 4th, but horrible weather caused the ship to come back in for a few days, 
Lieutenant Wallingford used this time to train his Marines in small arm drills, while his Navy counterpart had his sailors train with the cannons. On April 8th, the weather cleared up and the ship headed out to sea again. A French frigate would escort the Ranger out to sea, but headed back to France four days later. The Ranger would begin her mission immediately, and on the 10th, captured and sunk a brigantine between England and Ireland. And on the 17th, the Ranger captured a 250-ton ship off the coast of Dublin. The next day, the Ranger ran into a British cutter. They chased the ship for several hours, but it eventually escaped the Americans. The surgeon on board the Ranger stated, Had the captain have permitted the Marines to fire on them when they first came under our lee quarter, we might have taken her with great ease. The Ranger would go on to capture a British schooner and a sloop that were sunk as well. Jones headed towards the English coast on April 22nd. He decided to sail towards the port of Whitehaven. His decision was based on a couple of factors. One of the reasons he decided on Whitehaven was because he was familiar with the port. When Jones was 13, he sailed out of the port towards Virginia. This was also a popular port, and intelligence noted that there was a lot of activity here. However, the crew of the Ranger was still prize-hungry, and men didn't see the point of this raid since little to no prize money would be awarded and this would serve very little advantage to the American military. Two lieutenants on board the Ranger, Lieutenant Thomas Simpson and Lieutenant Elijah Hall, started to persuade the crew to rebel against Jones' decision. Jones addressed their behaviors in his memoirs, and he stated, They were poor. Instead of encouraging the morale of the crew, they excited them to disobedience. They persuaded them that they had the right to judge whether a measure that was proposed to them was good or bad. The tension between Jones and Simpson was nothing new, and this rivalry would ultimately lead to Simpson giving the command of the Ranger. But the Ranger was still under Jones's command, and he sailed for Whitehaven. When they were a few miles away, 30 volunteers were loaded onto two boats, and they were lowered over the side. Jones was with them as well, and he took command over one of the boats with Lieutenant Major. The other boat was commanded by Marine Lieutenant Wallingford. As most secret missions do, the two boats left at midnight, and they were filled with men and explosives. After several hours of intense rowing, the two boats reached their destination, but by the time they arrived, the sun was starting to rise. Despite the risk of being seen, Jones decided to move forward with the mission. He ordered Wallingford's boat and crew to head towards the 150 merchantmen located at the north of the harbor and set fire to their ships. While the Marines were burning merchant ships, Jones and his crew would scale the walls of the port's southern battery, spike the guns, and take care of the four guards located in the guardhouse. Jones and his crew were successful in capturing the fort, and he quickly headed back to his boat to witness the carnage Wallingford had on the merchant ships to the north. However, there was no fire. Jones noticed that Wallingford's boat had returned. After speaking to Wallingford, it turned out the torch went out right when they were going to set fire to the ships. Jones couldn't help them out because coincidentally, the same thing happened to his light. Without breaking his stride, 
Jones went to a nearby tavern, lit his fire, and headed towards the south end of the harbor, where 70 to 100 ships were grounded. He looked for the largest ship, and he found the Thompson. He started a fire on the ship, found a barrel of tar, and poured it on the flames to help the ship burn. It was about an hour after sunrise, and Jones decided it was time to head back to the ranger. Unfortunately, a deserter escaped and ran from house to house informing the locals of what was going on. This caused the town to panic and head to the port. Jones had to escape quickly, but before he and his crew made their way back to the ranger, they released American prisoners locked up in the area. The locals were able to repair some of the spike cannons, and they began to fire at the two boats and their crew. The shots missed, and by 1900, Jones and the two boats were safely on the ranger. With Whitehaven in chaos, Jones decided to advance towards St. Mary's Isle to complete the second part of his plan. The target was the Earl of Selkirk, and the goal was to capture him and bring him back to France for a prisoner exchange or until the British agreed to treat American prisoners better. When the ranger approached, Jones lowered the boats into the water and boarded his crew, which included himself, Lieutenant Wallingford, Master David Collum, and about 12 other Marines and sailors. It took 30 minutes for the crew to reach shore. A guard was left by the boat and the remaining party headed towards the Earl's location. As they were headed to their destination, they ran into the head gardener. Jones stated that they were a press gang looking for recruits for the Royal Navy. Jones asked the head gardener a few more questions, and he learned that the Earl was not there. This threw a wrench in Jones's plan. With little reason to continue forward, Jones decided that he and his crew should head back to the ranger. However, his crew had a different idea, and they suggested that they head to the Earl's house and loot the property. Jones authorized this request, and he sent a small crew to the house to demand the family silver. The crew was not allowed to search the house for anything else, nor were they to demand anything else from the residents. As the crew approached, Lady Selkirk noticed that the Americans started to circle the house. She sent the children and her guest upstairs, and stayed behind with the butler to meet the advancing Americans. The two officers, Wallingford and Colum positioned sentries at each doorway armed with a musket, bayonet, cutlass, and two pistols. They entered the house and started to speak with Lady Selkirk. It was a simple and straightforward introduction. They stated that they were from a frigate belonging to the United States and they have been ordered to take her silver. The Countess didn't have much of an option, and since she was relatively unguarded, agreed to comply. Colum was the senior officer in charge. Lady Selkirk described him as wearing all blue clothes, which didn't look like a uniform in her opinion. She stated that he had a vile blackguard look and seemed by nature a very disagreeable and one might say a bad man. However, she had a different opinion of Wallingford, and she described this Marine as a civil young man in a green uniform, an anchor on his buttons which were white. With a blue-green coat over his uniform, he seemed naturally well-bred and not to like his employment. After some back and forth between Colum accusing Lady Selkirk of hiding more silver and Lady Selkirk insisting that they aren't, 
the crew decided they had enough and started to leave. Before they headed out, Lady Selkirk asked for a receipt. Lieutenant Wallingford started to complete the receipt, but the pen stopped working after about three and a half words. Wallingford just shrugged it off and said, it was no matter for everyone would soon know they had been there. She gave both officers a glass of wine, they finished it, and they quietly led their men back to the ranger. The actual damage done by Jones and his raids were negligible. British estimates put losses ranging from 250 pounds to 1,250 pounds. However, the impacts of these raids were enormous. On April 28, 1778, the London Chronicle reported that a number of expresses were dispatched to all capital seaports where any future attacks are likely to be made. All strangers in the harbor would be secured and examined. Similar notices were sent throughout the entire country. Multiple other newspapers printed articles criticizing the British government and their poor preparation of the defenseless ports. To appease the citizens, the British also sent the HMS Stag out to patrol the waters and seek out the Yankee pirates. With a partially successful mission behind him, Jones and the Ranger decided to stay in the local waters instead of heading back to France. They planned a second trip to the loft, but this time with the Drake in their target. The crew had a problem with this mission, stating that the only reason for this move was for self-interest. The two naval lieutenants who caused a stir about Whitehaven started to turn on Jones for this decision as well, only this time they used this opportunity to mutiny. Lieutenant Major caught this plan in time and gave Jones a heads up on the mutiny. The plan was for Colum to rush Jones as the signal for mutiny to begin but according to the deposition of Lieutenant Major, Jones would put a pistol to Colum's head as soon as he started to rush, and this would stop the mutiny. While Jones was dealing with this fiasco, the Drake caught word of the Rangers' recent exploits, and they headed out into the channel. The Drake spotted an unknown ship on the horizon and sent out a boat to investigate. Jones noticed the approaching boat and sent his crew down below. A British lieutenant boarded the ranger and demanded information about the ship and her crew. Jones responded by informing the lieutenant that him and his crew were now prisoners. This small victory had an invigorating impact on Jones's crew, and the capture of the British crew motivated them to support his idea of attacking the Drake. Jones towed the captured boat behind them and cruised closer to the Drake. His plan was to entice the British into a larger area so he can better maneuver around the enemy. The plan worked, and the Drake would slowly start to advance towards the Ranger. Jones waited and permitted the British to come closer. They were within shouting distance of each other, and the captain of the Drake ordered the British colors be raised. The Ranger answered back by raising the flag of the United States. Confused, the captain of the Drake asked, What ship is this? Colum responded with, The American Continental Ship Ranger. We have been waiting for you. Come on. Jones ordered the Ranger's helm up. This aligned the ship in front of and across the Drake's bow. Jones fired the first shot with a broadside of grape shot. The battle lasted an hour and four minutes, and it ended with the Drake's captain and four others dead. The Drake also had one lieutenant 
and 19 other men wounded in the battle. The ship's rigging was also destroyed. The Ranger experienced a loss as well, and Marine Lieutenant Samuel Wallingford was shot in the head by a musket ball and died. Two other sailors died and another five were wounded. The news of Wallingford's death would eventually reach Lady Selkirk, and she remembered him when he raided her house. He must have left the lasting impression, because after hearing of his death, Lady Selkirk wrote a letter to Joan stating, We were all sorry to hear afterwards that the young officer in green uniform was killed in your engagement with the Drake. For he in particular showed so much civility and so apparent a dislike at the business he was then on that it's surprising how he should have been one of the composers of it. Wallingford would be buried at sea on April 25, 1778. Just a quick digression here. So let's see if I can get this right. So Miss Roswell Avril, so she is the wife of the grandson of Samuel Wallingford's granddaughter. So she donated Samuel Wallingford's notorious green waistcoat to the Maine State Museum Commission. This is the same waistcoat that Lady Selkirk keeps mentioning. The Maine State Museum Commission loaned it to the United States Marine Corps Museum. I'm not sure if it's still on display, but if it is, it's worth a look if you're in the area. With Wallingford now deceased, Sergeant of Marines John Ricker stepped up to the plate and was given command of the Marine Detachment until another officer could be found. Repairs were made to the ship and Jones's fleet sailed towards France with their prizes on May 4th. Captain Thomas Simpson, the same guy who attempted mutiny twice, was put in charge of the Drake. The day after their departure, Jones spotted another ship to their north. He turned his ship around and commanded the Drake to turn around as well. However, Simpson did not respond. It turned out to be a Swedish vessel, so Jones quickly turned around and headed towards the Drake. This was the last draw for Jones, and he placed Simpson under arrest for disobeying him. Elijah Hall took Simpson's place, and the two ships headed for France. Once he arrived in France, he had a few problems to solve. The first was finding a replacement for Wallingford. This would be easier than anticipated. An American agent, who was located about 200 miles south of Jones, sent a letter with the recommendation of William Morris. He assumed Jones would like Morris because he was a man that was not concerned about wealth. Jones agreed with this decision, and William Morris was selected after stating, My intentions are entirely to serve my country, and wish to enter into service with no other view. Now Jones had to figure out what to do with Simpson. Jones only had the authority to place Simpson under arrest, not court-martial him. When he brought the news to the American commissioners, they asked him to consider letting Simpson free and have him travel to America to face his court-martial there. Jones reluctantly agreed with the commissioners and he let Simpson go free on June 10th. Unfortunately for Jones, five weeks later, Simpson would be released from custody and put in charge of the Ranger. Jones would be left in Paris while his ship and his crew sailed away with Simpson as their new captain. Thanks for listening. Join us next week while we talk about the Marines on board the Boston. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. 
Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.